Well, good morning. Joy to be gathered with you this morning. If, if you'd open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. I, I trust our, our time in this book has been fruitful for you. You know, I've, I've loved studying this letter, interacting with, with these people. You know, New Testament letters, and, and I hope we're getting a, a feel for this along the way, right? These are not just abstracted truth. You know, this is not like reading from a recipe book. We, we get to witness these things in lived reality. We, we, we get to spend time with this people and, and this congregation. And if you remember the, the context here, we've, we've been visiting a community in conflict. This is a church that has experienced the blessing of God in some amazing ways, but, but somehow that's become disconnected from what they're after. They, they've begun to strive for and fight about something else entirely. And, and if you learn to, to pay attention to some of your strongest emotions, things like excitement or disappointment, frustration, the anxiety that, that keeps you up at night, the, the fear that greets you in the morning, or the ambition that, that drives you to show up early, what, what spins your wheels and gets your mental energy. If you trace these things out, you will always find the shape of something that you are building. So, something that, that we've crafted and feel an allegiance to. What are you trying to create on the landscape of life? You know, this is a very relational letter, but, but we need to pay attention to why relationships go wrong. You know, what causes us to, to move towards certain people and away from other people? You know, those you try to get around and, and those that you avoid out of either insecurity or personal offense. What, what are the relationships that you find to be strangely dissatisfying? You, you've kind of just moved on from them. Why, why do you find your, your friendships to be unfulfilling or your, your church to be irritating or your marriage to be a mistake? Well, we align ourselves with the people that we think will partner with us in our building project. As, as Paul Tripp puts it, when we're busy building our own kingdoms, people become either vehicles to get us where we want or obstacles standing in the way. We, we see them as opportunities to advance our agenda or as liabilities that just complicate our lives. Now, why all these factions in Corinth about something as, as silly as, you know, what church political party you, you belong to? I'm of Paul, I'm, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas, or I'm of Christ, I'm, I'm better than all you guys, right? What's going on here? Well, this is because we use people. This was not, you know, don't be mistaken, this was not about the privilege of being mentored by Paul or getting un, to sit under the teaching ministry of Apollos. This was about how can I use association with them to benefit me? How can I benefit from their reputation? And as you keep reading Paul's letters to Corinth, it didn't take long for the I'm of Paul party to become disenchanted with him as well. They, they found him to be expendable. Whenever we're in conflict, we're not just fighting, we're always fighting for something. The question is, 
What is that? What are we trying to create? And where do we get those building plans from? Well, well that's, the, that's the flow of thought here in the, in the letter at, the, at this point. In our text this morning, Paul's telling the Corinthians, you are supposed to be building something, but it's not your personal platform. You're supposed to be building Christ's church. It's the only thing that will last. And you need to be careful how you build it. So let's read together 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. For the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Let's pray together. Lord, we... We arrive in this moment with whatever we have brought with us facing this week. And, and there are present realities, Lord, right before our eyes. The things that tend to capture our attention, grip our imagination, produce fear. But Lord, th- th- this passage, it, it lifts us out of our immediacy and it brings us all the way toward the end of history and it tells us to evaluate what we're doing today based on that and we need help God we we need help to feel the impact of that we we need these to be more than just words we need to come face to face with the reality that they represent and allow that to to influence and to shape what we're trying to construct today. So God, help us. Help us to attend to your word this morning and to respond with faith, trusting in you as we obey. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, well Paul kind of shifts metaphors here. There, there, there was some agricultural imagery you might remember last week in the, in the text that Pastor Ronald led us through. He talks about how I, I planted and, and Apollos watered, but, but God gives the growth. And he, and he tells them that you're God's field. And then all of a sudden the scene changes and he says, you're, you're God's building. And so we kind of move from the, from the agricultural to the architectural there. But, but, but notice what he's doing here. This, this is a letter that's not mainly being written to church leaders. It's not that you know, Paul's just gathered together the pastors and the elders in Corinth, and now he's speaking to them about how to build the church. This is to the congregation. And, and he assumes that they have a vested interest and a responsibility for how the church is being built. And that's true for all of us as well. If you're a member of this church, you share responsibility for what's being built here. And we're going to look at four features of this construction project. There, there are the builders, the foundation, the materials, and the lasting 
structure. So first, the builders. Look, look again, verse 10. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And, and everything in that sentence matters. Whatever Paul did in this city was entirely produced by grace. It was according to God's gift, God's enablement, God's action that something got done. And and these are not throwaway words, right? He's not just talking about grace because that's the Christianese thing to do. He he is targeting something here, right? This congregation had a, a fascination with and a disproportionate emphasis on the human contribution in ministry, they, they loved impressive leaders. They, they, they were more committed to personalities than they were to the person of the spirit. They, their culture, like ours, taught them to look to people that had celebrity status. They, they were keeping up with the Corinthians in their day, right? They, they, they loved the sense of, of being included in this inner ring of movers and shakers, that's what they were impressed with. But, but it's interesting that, that Paul, in, in adjusting that, he, he doesn't remove the, the, the human responsibility component here, right? In fact, he, he communicates that they're not taking their responsibility seriously enough. They're looking in all the wrong categories. But, but, but notice the combination here, right? By grace, I built and, and, and those go hand in hand in the vocabulary of Christian ministry. God's undeserved empowering and our effort. And he, he talks like this later on in this letter in chapter 15, verse 10. You, know, you want to know what I am? He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. What's that mean? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. And then you think the sentence is done, but then you hear another qualification here. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. The man who knew more than anyone else how to rest from his labors in Christ says that he worked harder than anyone else. God's grace energized him to get to work. And, and his was not a shoddy work. He says, like a skilled master builder. And, and the word there for skill, in the Greek, it's sophos. It's the, it's the word for wise. And, and, and we know he's intentionally using a Corinthian trigger word here, right? They, they loved what was intellectually impressive, what represented human achievement, According to the culture, but, but Paul's not opposed to wisdom and skill. He just doesn't put any stock in the wisdom of this age, right? The, the, the first century life hacks, right? The, the, the kind of insight that he has in mind, it doesn't come from just browsing news headlines in Corinth. And, and we should receive something here. What God calls us to do requires wisdom. There is a complexity that we face. We don't don't live in a simple world. It's a world that's designed by God with his intentions and it's a world that's fallen and that is broken and and it requires study 
It requires patience, deep thought. We we, we can't be lazy and assume that if it's something that God has called us to do, it's going to happen automatically and with minimal resistance. And so my my children are going to be self-parenting and my small group is going to benefit from some stale idea I had 20 years ago. Right? It's so easy to just go through life unreflectively, engaging the next thing at, at a quick pace and with no preparation, flying by the seat of our pants, arriving at the next setting, thinking that we can wing it. But, but pastorally, you know, we're aware of this. We, we impart realities. From God's word, we impart realities that people don't have the space to add to their lives. That happens on Sunday mornings, in conferences, in counseling meetings, right? We, we, we bring with us maybe just enough attention span to get something out of the session, but then we go back to a life that's overcrowded and that's mentally busy and filled up with information. And so things like studying the sovereignty and the character of God or preparing for a season of trial and and suffering before it arrives and, and catches us off guard, right? Ain't nobody got time for that these days. And so we're not ready to face what's right in front of us. And, and one of the reasons why we manage conflict so poorly is we, we find the process of trying to understand the other person to be exasperating. We, we, we can barely keep up with our own thoughts, let alone their perspective, and trying to figure out why it is you think the things that you do and why you're different from me. And I just want to conclude that's weird, that's wrong. Can we just move on from here? But, but listen, if, if we're going to be a church, and I hope that's what we've arrived this morning aiming to do, right? if we're going to fulfill God's call, he, he, he has for us to serve in ways that mean we need to grow in the skills of ministry, right? This is what it means to be a relational community, to be a welcoming community that's able to help one another. Counseling and care for people require skill. Pat answers, quick judgments, Something that makes sense from my experience before I've really understood you, that that, that doesn't help anyone, right? It it takes listening, probing, presence, and concern. Skillful building involves prayer, the power of the Spirit, depth in the Word of God, humility and courage. May, May God make us into being such people. We need him to move upon us in the way that he moved upon Paul. But the good news is that God's the architect, right? He's, he's drawn the plans for the church. He's funded the project. He, he purchased it with Christ, right? We are God's building, Paul says in verse 9. But he's called us to build. And, and he describes himself as the, the contractor or the, the master Builder, and, and that, that title is not a particular strength of mine. 
Uh, I don't know what names I will be called in life, but skilled master builder will certainly never be one of them. Uh, my home maintenance uh, abilities consist of a YouTube education and DIY attempts. Uh, but when I, when I think of this phrase, what, what, what comes to mind to me right now is some uh, longtime family friends of, of, of Rebecca's family, uh, Ronnie and Nadine Heiser. And a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time with them on their, their property in, in Tickfaw, and, and they've got like... Like 100 animals on their property there. And, and just over time, he, he's really built something there. And, and Knox got to operate his excavator and was, was pulling all the controls and swinging the boom around about to hit all his vehicles. And Ronnie didn't seem to care. Uh, but, but this man has, has built his, his home. It's a, it's a pretty significant size from the foundation up and, and every step of the way, every part of that process, his hands touched. He designed and he did. And, and if you're a book nerd like me, you pay attention to stuff like that. That, that impresses you. But, but notice here, as, as skillful as the apostle Paul is, he just had one role in this project. He laid the foundation And quickly the sentence moves on, right? And someone else is building on it. In the ancient world, building was a really slow process. You didn't have any power tools, right? And and it would take, you know, in some cases, decades or centuries to complete. And so there might be one generation that would lay a foundation and another that would come along and add to it. And then, and then maybe it wasn't until the third generation that they actually saw it to its completion, right? You might never see it finished before you died. And, and, and Paul began something in Corinth here. Today we, we, we talk about uh, church planters. We talk about founders of, of ministries and organizations. And, and, and both of those terms come from th- this text here. In verse 6, Paul planted the gospel in this church. And in verse 10, he laid a foundation. But, but he reminds them of where they came from because they seem to have spiritual amnesia. Of their history. Later on in in 2 Corinthians, he writes another letter to them. In chapter 10, verse 14, he reminds them one more time we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you, for we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. It's a sad irony of church conflict that that some some of the most formative people that God used. In your early Christian walk can be people that you no longer speak with. You've just moved on. Because at some sometime and in some place they became obstacles to what you were trying to create. And Paul uses these indefinite pronouns here, right? Someone else is building. Let each person take care. He doesn't name any names. Apollos has receded from view. In fact, he is no longer in Corinth at the, at the time of the writing of this letter. In, in chapter 4, verse 15, he tells them, you guys now seem to have countless guides, countless teachers. He's, I'm your father, but there's a lot of people speaking into your life. And Paul's concerned about that. That's not necessarily a good thing, right? He's, he's concerned about what's being modeled for them. But, but here's a lesson that we can receive from Paul here. We never have ownership of what we build. Whatever that is. 
that's the church, if that's a ministry that we have a burden for, if that's our families, if that's our our business, right? This is not about us. There is something that is going to outlast us. And, And in all their competition, the Corinthians had lost sight of that. If we struggle with with fear of losing our position of influence, if we feel threatened by someone else coming along and and being successful in some category that has mattered to us, then, then we're just building our own kingdom. And Paul's telling them, we're not the kings. In chapter four, he's saying, when did you guys begin to reign? Who puts you on the throne? It would have been nice if somebody would let us know. We could have, you know, shared in your rule. He says, no, no, what are we? Look, look, look back in verse 5 of chapter 3. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? What, what exactly are these names that you guys like to throw around? Servants. Servants through whom you believed. As the Lord has assigned to each. And then sometimes the Lord assigns that task to others. Servants don't have ownership. The hired construction worker building a skyscraper doesn't own that real estate. And sometimes another person comes along and finishes the job. We we are not irreplaceable. The Moravian minister, Count Zizendorf, said to a a group of missionaries that he was sending out into the field, he he gave them this commission. He said, uh, preach the gospel, die, and be forgotten. Now, with a name like Count Zizendorf, it's hard to be forgotten. I don't know if anybody dressed up as him on Wednesday night. Maybe maybe he was your character, right? But, But here's a fact, right? Other hands will touch what we have invested in by God's design. Our parents, by God's grace, we we seek to lay a foundation in Christ and someone else will come and build upon it. There, There will be other relationships, other leaders that God's gonna use in their lives. And and that's that's true for decades to come. We we don't get to be in control of that. We we just entrust them to God's work. Through other people, that in his plan, in his sovereignty, he, he's assigned that task, which that ought to be tremendously free. It's not like your, your job to get it all the way done, no matter what, it's all hanging on you, right? God is so much larger than our influence and our abilities and what he intends to do in their lives. And to the, the older generation in the church here, thank you for building. Thank you for making something that has lasted. And, and there are going to be younger people who come along and put their hands on stuff that, that over, over the years you've touched and you've had oversight over. And, 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 and we're going to shape the way the church feels and some of the emphases of the ministry. And we need to be careful. But do you welcome that? Do you see that as God's design and his wisdom or or does that feel a little frightening to you? Well, he says here, take care how you 
build. Let each one take care how he builds on this. And that, that's the main thought. It's the main imperative here. God holds leaders accountable. He holds all of his people accountable for how we are building the church. And, and the first thing we need to make sure is that we're building on the right foundation. He says, verse 11, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And tracking along so far, we, we know he means Jesus Christ and him crucified. Chapter 2, verse 2. Or the word of the cross. Chapter 1, verse 18. Right, It's the, it's the message of the gospel. It's, it's Jesus with all of his saving and sanctifying power. And he's saying, you got to get the foundation right. We know something, you, you live in Metairie, you live in New Orleans, you, you know foundations matter. And we see foundation problems all around us. And if you live in a house that's, that's got them, they, they show up in, in other ways. You know, the, the, the windows don't quite shut like they used to. Or cracks are starting to form in your bricks. Or the roof begins to leak. Or roaches and termites become your roommates. Because they just love all the opportunities they now have to, to get inside of your home. Right? The, the foundation determines everything else. And, and we might wonder, you know, why, why, did, why all of a sudden verse 11 does he introduce this? He's talking about what you're building, what you're putting on top of it. Why does he then say, well, there, there's no other foundation? Well, the, well, the reason is the foundation has to control how you build it. It determines the shape of the structure. You never move on from it and start creating something somewhere else, right? The, the gospel, it's not the, the front door that you pass through as you enter the building. It's the foundation. You never move on from it. It's holding everything else up. And, and the Corinthians seemed to be ready to move on. At, le- at least they, they, they wanted Christ crucified plus something more interesting, more sophisticated, more inspiring. And so he, he tells them in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he's saying you, you've become enamored with builders who can't locate the foundation. Look what he tells in verse 4. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you, you put up with it readily enough. Now, he's not necessarily accusing them of, of believing a false gospel. He's saying that they're, they're too willing to, to put up with a, a distorted or diminished gospel. So you, you've not left Jesus behind, but, but if somebody rolls into town and they're offering some kind of spiritual tips and tricks to a victorious life, and, and if Jesus is this little footnote, you'll still fill the stadium. You'll still give them a hearing because they're scratching you where you itch. What really gets your attention and your excitement? You can attack a foundation directly or you can just keep moving the walls out until you're no longer resting on it, but you're on sinking sand. And we might think, man, Paul, settle down, dude. At least people are showing up for church, right? At least they're, they're gathered there. They're glad to be here. It, it's, it's not enough to, to just celebrate that something's happening. That people are coming together and come away 
feeling good. The, the Corinthians were really proud of what they had created, but it, it had shifted its weight and it was in danger of toppling over. David Jackman writes, if Christ is not the basis of whatever sort of moral life a person may try to live, it is not the Christian life. I hope we're clear on that. You know, we've got people from, from different backgrounds, different spiritual walks gathered together here. The heart of the Christian message is not how you can pick up the pieces of your life and get your act together and how God's there to offer some, you know, some help along the way and some advice in your self-improvement project. That's not Christianity. It's, it's based on something entirely outside of us and what he's done. That's glorious good news. And, and, and no matter what, in our walk, we can never move past that. He goes on to say, if he's not the basis of whatever sort of community men may try to build, that community is not the Christian church. Clearly, Paul's fear is that they will subtly change the foundation, thinking that they are not replacing Christ, but supplementing him with a fuller and richer spirituality. If that happens, the end product will not be a Christian church. The sufficiency of the gospel of Christ is the issue that is at stake here. And Paul is again fighting against the Corinthian view that the apostolic gospel is somehow inadequate and needs to be supplemented with a form of supernatural triumphalism. And supernatural triumphalism is a, is a baptized version of haters gonna hate, so go ahead and shake it off. Right? You, you, you can feel energized to face the weak, you're ready to go and take your, 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 your problems by storm, right? But if, if your heart has no more affection for the Savior, then it hasn't been a Christian experience. You can feel ready to engage social issues and make a difference in the world. But if that's dislocated from the message of the cross, then it's not a Christian mission. And every generation needs to fight to preserve this foundation. Paul's saying, you want to fight about something, Corinthians? Fight about this. Fight to keep this at the center. Fight to keep this as the ground beneath your feet. Albert Moeller just celebrated his 25th anniversary as the, the president of, of Southern Baptist Seminary. And 25 years ago, his, his opening address to the the students there, and, and you probably don't know the, the history of, of that institution, but he was really instrumental in, in returning it to a, a confidence in God's word and confidence in the, in the gospel. But, but, but something he's, he's, the title of his address there uh, was, was don't just do something, stand there. And we, we often say, don't just stand there, do something. But he's saying it's not enough to just be active engage stuff. There needs to be something you're standing on. There needs to be truth beneath your feet that you don't move on from. We face our own temptations today to be embarrassed by the authority of Scripture, to question the gospel sufficiency, to, to allow cultural pressures and expectations to define us. We, listen, we, we cannot assume this. Every generation, we need to tell them the good news. We need to pass on a, a passion for it, for Jesus Christ and him 
crucified. We, we can never move on from its, its mystery, the, the marvel that God has shown us mercy. Is that what the, the young people in the children's ministry wing hear from us? What we're excited about? What's getting us energized? The issues that we want to talk about? Or is, is Jesus Christ and him crucified some kind of coloring sheet they're working on right now and they find out eventually you move on from that and you start caring about other things? You know, it, it's easy to get excited about something new. You know, who, who wants to spend money shoring up your foundation when you can do a kitchen remodel? Uh, that, that's something that's worth talking about. But it, it, it's not wrong to think of unexplored categories where we can have an impact. That's something we should do. That's part of building. But, but that can become our focus in ways that, that shifts us off of the cornerstone. And our, our identity is not based in the latest activist item and whatever is lighting up Twitter right now. We are founded on Christ and him crucified. Now we can build on this, but use the wrong materials. And so he says, verse 12, now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. Uh, well, this, this month marked another anniversary for us. October was, was 10 years now that we have been inside of this church building. And, and while that project w- w- was, was going on, the, the course of time for, we, we were renting offices over on, on, on West Esplanade or actually Williams Boulevard. So I can't remember 10 years ago by now. Um, and, and, and Pete Shefferstein's office was just filled with these you know, four-inch thick plans that he was just constantly pouring over throughout that project. And, and he would come by here and he would walk the building as, as, as people were working on it. And, and then again and again, he would come upon something and he let the guys know you're doing that wrong that's not supposed to go there that's supposed to go over here that's not the way that that's supposed to be shaped you're using the wrong stuff and they would kind of push back on him and then he would just eventually walk away and say it's going to hurt when you have to redo it and sure enough they would have to redo it (laughs) right right plans are supposed to be followed and and plans they they specify a material list as well. And and Paul's feeling like he he laid a foundation in Corinth. He handed them the plans and and the next thing he knows they're they're creating something about out of shiny plastic and they're they're lit up about the fact that it happens to sparkle. And so he's revisiting with them. What exactly have you put in place? Not all that glitters is gold. Now, his point isn't so much the costliness of this list of materials, but, but, but what's going to withstand fire? And we'll see that in a moment. But, but the Corinthians had gathered too many of their supplies from their culture. They, they were taking human ingenuity, what was naturally attractive, what tended to be celebrated in their day, and they were seeking to make a church with that. They, they were caught up in what was getting the attention of the people around them and allowing natural minds to be the evaluators of something that can only be spiritually discerned. And that's the problem, by the way. If, if, you, 
if you base your ministry mainly out of, out of felt needs, you know, you people do not accurately self-diagnose their problem. What they may be feeling, what makes a lot of sense to them, what might even feel like it's a life or death matter, right? It, it doesn't mean that they know really what's the issue underneath all of that. They're, they're not going to come. Natural people don't come to the conclusion that ultimately they're the one who needs to really change. They, they, they need something more than the wisdom of this age. Decades ago, a thinker and church leader named Francis Schaeffer, he, he made the point that it's not enough just to do the Lord's work. We, we need to do the Lord's work in the Lord's way. And, and, and he said that the central problem of our day is not liberalism, and he has his own list, and you can fill that in with whatever ism you're really frightened about right now. He says, the main problem is the church trying to do the Lord's work in the power of the flesh rather than the spirit. He said, is it not amazing that we know the power of the Holy Spirit can be ours, we still ape the world's wisdom? Trust its forms of publicity, its noise, and imitate its ways of manipulating men. If we try to influence the world by using its methods, we are doing the Lord's work in the flesh. If we put activity, even good activity, at the center rather than trusting God, then there may be the power of the world, but we will lack the power of the Holy Spirit. And that is, that is harder to detect today than it was in Schaefer's day. Because the, the noise of the world's wisdom is, it's the background hum of our lives. And it affects us. It shapes our expectations. It skews our perspective. A question for you, when, when, when you go to build life, who taught you what to pick up? Whether that's a good addition or not. What feels most urgent to you? What, what, what's occupying you? Who are the people that right now you, you feel like you're needing to convince you think they're the ones who need to change in some category, right? When, when, when you attempt to motivate the people in your life towards something, your extended family, your spouse, your children, right? Someone that you're trying to help, what, what are you attempting to accomplish? And how are you doing that? And for the Corinthians, it was rhetoric, it was persuasion. That kind of makes sense to me, my, my personality, right? If, if I can feel like I can just drown you if, with words, if I can just make you run out of energy in, in an argument, then I'm just going to somehow be the winner by default. But maybe you're different from that. Maybe you, you tend toward emotional withdrawal, kind of punishing them by taking away your affection or your, your presence. But one way or another, we, we, we use, we have our own methods of manipulation Maybe you haven't prayed about it, but you've lifted every lever and turned every natural knob that you can get your hands on. Paul's point is that the materials we use always reveal what it is we're trying to construct. 
The challenge is that the materials of the Spirit can be slow and difficult. As Paul said in the last chapter, that they work through our weakness and trembling. The experiences that we're trying to avoid. They, they make use of our suffering. That's what the message of the cross tells us. That, that seeming contradiction of a, a suffering savior, a, a crucified hero. What, what the Greco-Roman world looked upon and said, that's nonsense. That's a bunch of foolishness. And the people of God, we see power. And we see beauty that's at work. It might be that some of the, the, the features of your life right now that you're trying so hard to avoid feels like a waste of time. It feels like nothing but frustration. That's the power of God for you right now. Being made perfect in weakness. Building something that's not going to crumble as this age passes away. When we want quick fixes, we reveal our lack of confidence in a Messiah who rescues only by death and resurrection. We're trained by our world to think that if something takes a long time or makes us uncomfortable, that it must not be good, it can't be worth the effort. We need new plans. And so we hit the eject button on our jobs or our marriages or our churches. And we move on to design a new life. But listen, wood, hay, and stubble are a lot easier to come by than gold that is refined by fire. But there's a difference between what can be put in place quickly and what's going to last. And that's where we land this morning, the the lasting structure. You know, he's telling them, don't use the materials of this age. Well, what are we supposed to use? (laughs) What else is there? Uh, well, Well, of the age to come. Look at, look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Right? These people, they, they loved praise. They, they, they loved status and recognition. And, and, and what Paul doesn't do, he, he, he doesn't remove that ambition. He doesn't say that's a wrong thing to want. He just reorients it. He, he gives it a, a future direction to it. They, they were too short-sighted in assessing whether things look good right now. And he says the, the workmanship is, is going to become manifest. You can't really see things right now for what their true reality is. There, there's a great revelation coming. It's going to be made known. And you know, we know buildings eventually reveal their quality. It starts to show up in the, the cracks and the deterioration. But what Paul has in mind here, it's, it's not just being tested by time, but tested by fire. He says, David Garland Quotes this, whether one's work will endure awaits more than the test of time. It awaits the test of the end time. But we don't have patience for future evaluation, let alone final evaluation. We want results now, which is why we get caught up in all the cosmetic improvements and ignore 
the structure. Martin Luther once said that on his calendar were only two days. Today and that day. Eternity is coming. For Paul, the return of Jesus and the day of judgment that awaited him affected how he saw everything. They were the great difference maker. And, and Paul could feel it. You, you know when you're kind of standing up on, on the edge of something, you're by a cliff or the height of a, of a skyscraper and, and you're looking down and, you, and you've got that kind of sinking feeling in your stomach and the, and the wobbling knees and that sense that maybe all of a sudden you're going to go over. Paul felt this. He was pushed all the way to the edge of eternity. And it never left his mind. It's coming. And with it, an assessment of what we have done. Do you realize that one day you will give an account to God for how you have lived your life? That you will have to give an explanation for the choices that you made, for how you obeyed or disobeyed, for what got your time and attention. And on that day, God will ask you, and and he will definitely ask me and the other leaders here, how did you build my church And he brings this warning of loss. Verse 15, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Now, he's not talking about works that earn us salvation. He's talking about the work that we do that's going to have a value then. And and even the, the careless builder, this is good news, the careless builder is saved, but it's as through fire. Now, just for our context here in New Orleans, that this is not a verse about purgatory. You haven't finally found the one verse in the Bible that talks about that. Uh, He he doesn't have in mind a, a believer who is suffering for his sins, either to pay for them or to purify them. It's not the person who is burned here, but the work. And, and the purpose of this fire, it's not to punish or to destroy or even to refine. It's to reveal. And, and, and if you've ever experienced a house fire or, or stood with people kind of across the street while they, they watched all their possessions go up in flames, it is a sobering encounter. Even when everybody's made it out fine. But they watch everything that they've gathered in that moment, that quickly. It's lost. And Paul's telling the Corinthians, watch out that that isn't your experience one day. There are things that we invest so much time and emotions and argument in that 10 seconds after the final judgment, they will be embers from the flames. And what will they be on that day? Listen, if this was a problem in the first century, what about all the options and opportunities we have today? 
What's capturing us? Will it stand the test of fire? And what ought to be most concerning to us is that some of the work that we thought we were doing for God will be lost. Let's allow ourselves to have a biblical category for this. Let's not forget everything else the Bible has to say about our status before God, about his mercy, about the loving arms of our Father that we will walk into one day. But listen, it's possible to be a Christian and to do harm to God's work through our own ambitions, through the ideals we have borrowed from the world, the things that we do that appear to be for God can in the end prove to have accomplished very little. And and, and that ought to be a frightening image, especially for teachers and leaders to the extent that our ministry has contained misplaced emphases Doctrinal error, bad attitudes, selfishness and pride, mishandling of people, personal prejudice, injustice, a loyalty and an allegiance to what is not of Christ, the true character of our ministries will be revealed. So Paul tells Timothy, be a workman who has no need to be ashamed. What's that mean? Well, it it means that it's possible to stand before Jesus one, one day, fully justified, fully forgiven, entering heaven by his mercy, but being ashamed of what that day has revealed. Saved, but only as through fire. And Paul doesn't want to be ashamed. He says, Philippians 1.20, it's my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. And, and how different that is from the Corinthian aims and what they right now are defining as shame. Paul has no interest in saving face. He has little concern about their assessment of him right now. He's got one ambition. I want to please the one for whom all of this effort was spent anyway. To his honor and to my eternal joy. And he brings us promise of reward. And Ronald, if you come back up, man. He says in verse 14, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. And he said earlier in the passage, verse 8, he who plants and he who waters are one and each will receive his wages according to his labor. And again, we got to allow that to exist in, in its right setting Because in Romans 4, he says, wages have nothing to do with the fact that God has justified you. But now in another setting, in sanctification, in the work of ministry that we do, he's saying, there's these these things called wages. There's work and there is reward that's coming that will correspond to what you've done. 
here and now. And so he tells them later in chapter 15, verse 58, in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Whatever the sacrifice, whatever the cost, whatever crumbles apart to pieces here and now, and you you look out on the landscape of life and you see very little there, what matters is not what you can see right now. What matters is what's going to be standing after your Savior returns and he brings in his hands his reward for those who have served him. For those who have labored in his name and for his glory. And he promises nothing will be wasted in that day. There will be no suffering. There will be no weakness. There will be no time you had a confrontation that looked like trembling and fear. But the reason you were shaking was not because you were trying to preserve the reputation of your own name. Because you were interested in building something of Christ in you, in the other person, and in this world. All of that, he says, is collected together in your Redeemer's hands. And he is preparing blessing to pour out on you on that day. And that, that's, a, that's a mystery because we know, you know, we know where 1 Corinthians began. That's only because of grace. <laughs> It's, it's, it's what grace produces that gets rewarded. Right? How does that work? It's kind of like, you know, when you know, Christmas season's coming up. And maybe some of you help, you know, your, your, your children buy gifts for other people in their family. And, and maybe you, you helped pay for the gift that they end up giving you. <laughs> That's what's going on here. And, 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 and listen, that there is not, there is not a pure motive in me. And so, the point about rewards is not the, the, the moment you get your act together and everything that you're doing perfectly mirrors how Jesus would have accomplished that. That's what gets God's notice. God, God takes, in the mystery of his ways, he takes our imperfect, weak, but sincere and grace-produced efforts to please him. And he says, I've got pleasure in that. And I will bring joy to you because of it. Listen to this thought from Randy Alcorn. He says, Scripture simply does not teach what most of us seem to assume that heaven will transform each of us into equal beings with equal possessions and equal responsibilities and equal capacities. It does not say that our previous lives will be of no eternal significance. It says exactly the opposite. It says that there is a shape that eternity is taking based upon what you are building here and now. And he tells the Corinthians, All of your measuring up of who stands a few inches higher than someone else, you are way ahead of schedule in trying to assess that. But when we lay all that down and our Savior's commendation is all that matters to us, we will receive it. Let's stand together.
God, thank you for this gathering and how the Spirit can use and promises to use the preaching of your word to affect us, to bring about freedom, to, to release our, our grip on some things that we have been fighting for that look a lot like wood, hay, and stubble. Lord, to reorient us around what really is a value. And Lord, we, we need more than just the impact of this moment. We, we do need the impact of this moment. We need your, your, your ministry of your spirit. We know that words traveling through the air do not change us. We want to be affected. God, we, we want to take that this week. We go to build life. We go to build your kingdom. We want to bring this with us. We want to continue to build. We want to know that our labor is not in vain. We want to build your church. We want to be influential in this world and the places that you've called us. We, we want to grow in skill. We don't want to be haphazard in what we're throwing together. We want to be patient and discerning. Spend time in your presence in ways that makes all the difference. And, and we don't want to look to what's immediately in front of us to assess whether or not what we're doing is worth it. So God, help us to be the people that you've called us to be that we might build for your glory. Let's respond to God in song. Sing together. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees. Oh, Spirit, come make us humble. We turn our eyes evil things Oh Lord we cast down our idols Give us clean hands Give us pure hearts Let us not lift our souls to another Give us clean hands Give us pure hearts seeks your face, O God of Jacob. God, let us be a generation that seeks, that seeks your face, O God of Jacob. We bow our hearts. We bend our knees 
us see the word of the cross. We turn our eyes from evil From our desires even. Oh Lord, we cast down our idols. So give us clean hands. Give us pure hearts. Let us not lift our souls to that now we see dimly Lord we are distracted by visions of our own grandeur perhaps our hearts yearn to be recognized affirmed exalted noticed so Father help us us place our eyes, fix our eyes, as the Apostle Peter would say, on that hope that awaits us, on that imperishable, imperishable, immovable, undefiled hope that is waiting for us in heaven. Let us not lift our souls, O Lord, to the praise of others. Let us lift our voices to praise you. So this week, O Lord, give us strength to focus on Christ and his cross. Move our hearts and minds away from us into you, O Lord. And be exalted in our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You have a good week, church. We'll see you next Sunday.